This is Terrify Me. A podcast about scary things in fact, fiction, and folklore. I'm your host, Anthony Frost. Now this week is going to be a little bit different. Uh, Basically, I have been horrendously busy. A little bit of a personal update. Uh, my wife is pregnant. I'm going to be a father, which is fantastic. We're very happy about it. Um, but it does mean that there's been a lot sort of going on in my personal life, trying to reorganize things and plan things in a way that makes sense for the coming expansion of our family, which means I haven't really had time to, you know, either research a like law heavy folklore episode or organize an interview and do the appropriate reading for that. So um, I didn't want to leave you guys empty-handed. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a public domain story and then tell you a little bit of a story about what happened to that story after it was published because um, I find it very interesting and it's you know related to what I talk about in the podcast. It's, it's a really fun one. Um, it is The Bowman by Arthur Macken. So I will just dive straight in. It was during the retreat of the 80,000, and the authority of this censorship is sufficient excuse for not being more explicit. But it was on the most awful day of that awful time, on the day when ruin and disaster came so near that their shadow fell over London far away, and, without any certain news, the hearts of men failed within them and grew faint, as if the agony of the army in the battlefield had entered into their souls. On this dreadful day, then, when 300,000 men in arms with all their artillery swelled like a flood against a little English company, there was one point above all other points in their battle line that was, for a time, in awful danger, not merely of defeat, but of utter annihilation. With the permission of the censorship and of the military expert, this corner may, perhaps, be described as a salient, and that if this angle were crushed and broken, then the English force as a whole would be shattered, the Allied left would be turned, and the sedan would inevitably follow. All the morning the German guns had thundered and shrieked against this corner, and against a thousand or so of men who held it. The men joked at the shells and found funny names for them, and had bets about them, and greeted them with scraps of musical songs. But the shells came and burst, and tore good Englishmen limb from limb, and tore brother from brother, and as the heat of the day increased, so did the fury of that terrific cannonade. There was no help, it seemed. The English artillery was good, but there was not nearly enough of it. It was being steadily battered into scrap iron. There comes a moment in a storm at sea when people say to one another, it is at its worst, it can blow no harder. And then there is a blast ten times more fierce than any before it. So it was in these English trenches. There were no stouter hearts in the whole world than the hearts of these men, but even they were appalled as as this seven times heated hell of the German cannonade fell upon them and overwhelmed them and destroyed them. At this very moment, they saw from their trenches that a tremendous host was moving against their lines. Five hundred of the thousand remained, and as far as they could see, the German infantry were pressing on against them, column upon column, a grey world of men, ten thousand of them, as it appeared afterwards. There was no hope at all. They shook hands, some of them. One man improvised a new version of the battle song, Goodbye, Goodbye to Tipperary, ending with, And we shan't get there. And they all went on firing steadily. The officers pointed out that such an opportunity for high-class fancy shooting might never occur again. The Germans dropped line after line. The Tipperary humorist asked, What price Sydney Street? And the few machine guns did their best. But everyone knew it was of no use. 
dead grey bodies lay in companies and battalions, as others came on and on and on, and they swarmed and stirred and advanced from beyond and beyond. World without end, amen, said one of the British soldiers, with some irrelevance, as he took aim and fired. And then he remembered, he says he cannot think why or wherefore, a queer vegetarian restaurant in London where he had once or twice eaten eccentric dishes of cutlets made out of lentils and nuts that pretended to be steak. On all the plates in this restaurant there was a printed figure of St. George in blue, with the motto, Adsit Anglis Sanctus Georgius, May St. George be a present help to the English. This soldier happened to know Latin and other useless things, and now, as he fired at this man in the grey advancing mass, 300 yards away, he uttered the pious vegetarian motto. He went on firing to the end, and at last Bill on his right had to clout him cheerfully over the head to make him stop, pointing out as he did so that the king's ammunition cost money and was not likely to be wasted in drilling funny patterns into dead Germans. For as the Latin scholar uttered his invocation, he felt something between a shudder and an electric shock pass through his body. The roar of the battle died down in his ears to a gentle murmur. Instead of it, he says, he heard a great voice and a shout louder than a thunder peal crying, Array! 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 His heart grew hot as a burning coal. It grew cold as ice within him, and it seemed to him that a tumult of voices answered his summons. He heard, or seemed to hear, thousands shouting, St. George! St. George! Ha, Monsieur, Ha! Sweet Saint, grant us good deliverance! St. George for merry England! Harrow! Harrow! Monseigneur St. George, succor us! Ha, St. George, ha, St. George, a longbow and a strongbow. Heaven's knight, aid us. And as the soldier heard these voices, he saw before him, beyond the trench, a long line of shapes, with a shining about them. They were like men who drew the bow, and with another shout, their cloud of arrows flew singing and tingling towards the air towards the German hosts. The other men in the trench were firing all the while. They had no hope, but they aimed just as if they had been shooting at Bisley. Suddenly one of them lifted up his voice in the plainest English, God help us, he bellowed to the man next to him, but we're blooming marvels. Look at those grey gentlemen, look at them, do you see them? They're not going down in dozens nor in hundreds, it's thousands it is. Look, look, there's a regiment gone while I'm talking to you. Shut it, the other soldier bellowed, taking aim. What are you gassing about? But he gulped, and with astonishment even as he spoke, for indeed the grey men were falling by the thousands. The English could hear the guttural scream of the German officers, the cackle of their revolvers as they shot the reluctant and still line after line crashed into the earth. All the while the Latin-bred soldier heard the cry, Harrow, Harrow, Monseigneur de Saint, quick to our aid, St. George help us. High Chevalier, defend us. The singing arrows fled so swift and thick that they darkened the air, and the heathen horde melted from before them. More machine guns, Bill yelled to Tom. Don't hear them, Tom yelled back, but thank God anyway, they've got it in the neck. In fact, there were 10,000 dead German soldiers left before that salient of the English army, and consequently there was no Sedan. In Germany, a country ruled by scientific principles, the great general staff decided that the contemptible English must have employed shells containing an unknown gas of a poisonous nature, as no wounds were discernible on the bodies of the dead German soldiers. But the man who knew what nuts tasted like when they were calling themselves steak knew also that St. George had brought his Agincourt bowmen to help the English. The man who knew what nuts tasted like when they called themselves steak is a line that I find incredibly hard to say with a straight face. Um, but that aside, this story kind of developed a really interesting life, right? Uh, because th this was published during World War I, right? and 
obviously, you know, that was a very interesting time in the worst possible ways in Europe. Um, you know, the, just uncountable amounts of debt over like a silly aristocratic family feud, essentially. It's just, yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. I don't think that Europe has recovered from the kind of psychic wounds of the First and Second World Wars. With that aside, uh, what, what happened with this story is that um, it, was, it was published as fiction, right? It was published as a fictional short story in a newspaper, uh, but within sort of a few months, it was being reprinted in various other places without a disclaimer saying that it was fiction. And, you know, within sort of a year of it being published, there were people who believed that this was true. There were people who claimed that they had heard from a soldier who was there that this was real and stuff like that. And Mackin himself, like, just straight out, 100% denies, like, he is, does not entertain the idea even for a second that there's any kind of reality in this story at all. Uh, but yeah, if you ever look up the Angels of Mont, uh, which is a legend of, you know, World War One, British soldiers being saved by angels, right? Basically, that's what this short story kind of morphed into over time. And it became a, a, an item of folklore, essentially. Um, and, you know, as you all know, I really love um, discussing the ways in which folklore and fiction influence one another. The commonalities between them and the differences and stuff like that. It's, it's interesting to me in a very profound way. And this story exemplifies that. And some of Macken's other work is... Like incredibly influential to me as a writer, and I just really like it. Aside from that, like uh, the great god Pan and his novella is probably one of the largest influences on the way that I write horror. And I think, uh, I think both Lovecraft and Stephen King are huge fans of it. And one of them, I don't recall which, called it possibly the greatest supernatural tale ever written in the English language. And I don't. 100% know if I would agree with that because I haven't read all of the horror tales written in the English language, but it, it's it's up there for me, personally. Absolutely adore it. Macken himself uh, was a Welsh writer, but a journalist as well, and an occultist, and just generally an interesting fellow. A lot of his work is available to read for free on uh, Gutenberg, the website where like, they produce loads of ebooks of public domain works. So I'd recommend checking that out. Um, just, you know, go to Gutenberg and search Arthur Mack and find something, read it. it like, it's, it's really good stuff. Uh, in terms of what I've been you know, listening to and reading, um, you know, uh, listening-wise, a fair bit of stuff. Um, a lot of stuff to do with actually non-genre-related topics because, you know, with the, with the kid on the way and stuff, um, I've been thinking a lot about sort of how I can develop a more stable and more sort of lucrative uh, career path outside of fiction writing stuff because I can't depend on it, obviously. Um, so I've been trying to teach myself how to code and listening to a lot of podcasts about coding and working in tech and stuff like that, which is all very interesting stuff, but it's not really relevant to the podcast. I have listened to some genre stuff. Um, Fricassi's podcast is always on my rotation these days because he speaks to some Fantastic people. That's the Dark Word by Philip Fricassi. Uh, his most recent episode was with Stephen Graham Jones, and I love Stephen Graham Jones. He's a fantastic writer. He seems like an incredibly cool dude. Um, so that's the Dark Word podcast, episode nine with Stephen Graham Jones. I'd really strongly recommend that if you're interested in horror fiction at all. Uh, someplace underneath 
which is N-E-I-T-H. Uh, they recently did an episode which was like the Curse of Appalachia Part 5, I think it was called, where they spoke about this um, judge who basically just jailed a whole bunch of kids for essentially nothing uh, because there was money in it. Like, you know, the, the, the prisons made money um, because that's how prisons work in the U.S., and to some extent here as well, but not not to the same degree. Uh, so it's disgusting in my mind, but you know, that's really aside from the point. Uh, so I think that's a worthwhile episode to listen to if you just want to get angry at something. Um, the injustice of it all is appalling, uh, but it is interesting, if nothing else. We can say that much for it. Um, in terms of reading, uh, to be honest, I haven't read a great deal over the last week. Um, so I haven't actually uh, finished another book so I don't have another book to recommend to you uh, so what I'm going to do instead is just talk about a book I like um, a book I like quite a lot actually and that book is a short story collection it's called Splinter by Alex Wolfgang and uh, he's he's not a very well known writer um, you can tell because he worked with me on a group project and well known writers don't do things like that um, but yeah, basically, he writes this kind of dark fantasy tinged weird horror sort of stuff, and that book in particular uh, is just sublime. There's some great stories in there. There's stuff like uh, two stories in particular which always stick in my mind are Travel Bug and Mandibles. There'll be a bug thing going on there. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, ha I haven't actually picked this book up in over a year, and I still so clearly remember those two stories in particular, which is unusual for me. Usually I have to read things kind of repeatedly to have them stick in my mind clearly, um, which isn't usually a problem because usually I'm reading constantly, but uh, well, I'm struggling for time at the moment. But yeah, uh, Splinter by Alex Wolfgang. Do check it out. Um, he's, he's a good guy. He's an indie author. He works very hard on the stuff he produces. And he could use a little bit more love, I think. You know, he deserves to have a lot more attention than he's currently receiving. Okay, well, that said, I don't really have anything else to say this week. Um, thank you for listening, as always. And thank you for putting up with me not really having much to give you this week. And I'll see you next week with a bit of a stronger offering. Thank you for listening to Terrify Me with Anthony Frost. The theme music is by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com and used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at TerrifyMePod, all one word. For more from me, visit AnthonyFrost.com or follow me on Twitter at AnthonyRFrost. That's Anthony without an H. See you next time.